Welcome to Foundation Christian Church. We're glad that you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit foundationcitrusheights.com. All right. I shared with you guys a few weeks ago that I'm going to try to turn over a new leaf and getting more lovely faces up onto this stage uh, to read scripture. And look for an email from me later this week. I'm going to ask for a list of folks who would, are comfortable coming up here and reading scripture, the text that I'm going to preach on. Uh, I want to have a wonderful saint come up here and read the text to be a blessing to everybody. You get to see their face and know who they are. And, um, and then I'll preach after that. Uh, this week, I'd like you to welcome, at the start of a marriage series, would you please welcome my lovely bride, Emily Kaiser. They were using the green one a minute ago, so let's do that. Ephesians 5, verse 21. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husband as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. And the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands... This means love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies, for a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church, and we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself and the husband, I'm sorry, and the wife must respect her husband. Lord, thank you, sweetie. Do we have the slides today? Okay. You can skip the first five or six slides because we just did that, so. Today we are starting a series on marriage. Before we get into that, does anybody need a copy of God's Word? We've got Bibles we can hand out right now. If you don't own a Bible, this is our gift to you. Take it home. It is yours. And let me remind you briefly, if you call Foundation your home, uh, of our giving, the silver bucket is in the back for those that give through cash, check, Jamba Juice gift cards, just seeing if you're listening, just checking, just see if you're listening. Thank you guys for those of you who are faithful in uh, blessing the Lord through your finances. I know there's a lot going on financially right now. I know inflation is kicking some people in the face right now. Uh, I know student loans all of a sudden are in repayment. There are things going on, so I just... I want you to know I, I, I'm with you, I feel it, and uh, we're going to do the best we can 
doing the Lord's work because how, how many of you let's know he owns a cattle on a thousand hills so he'll figure it out? Amen? He'll figure it out. So even though we had those budget reductions, the kingdom has been moving forward for a long time and it'll keep moving forward. So thank you guys. Uh, why on earth, Pastor Greg, would you devote five entire weeks to building a marriage that lasts? That's silly, Pastor Greg. Nobody gets divorced. Nobody has struggles. Nobody plans the imminent murder of their husband. There are way too many women chuckling right now. <laughs> Nervously, like, how did he know? Reminds me of a woman who was called before the judge for the murder of her husband. She goes, Your Honor, my husband died of natural causes. She says, Ma'am, you pushed him off a roof. She says, Gravity is natural. Anyway. So there are reasons, I think, in a world uh, built where scripture was made up by some folks at the Council of Nicaea, where God is a construct that people cling to to give them security during tough times, in a culture that is built increasingly on our feelings of the moment, not only is marriage gone by the wayside, Masculinity and femininity are in total crisis. We don't know what those are. So how can you talk about joining the two together to create something bigger than the sum of its parts? There are so many terms that need defining. God defined them a bazillion years ago and wrote down a book, but we lost our way, didn't we? We lost our way. And so uh, we could sit around, those of us who love Jesus, and complain about it, or we could do something, Right? I'm actually not going to transform the world by railing against some bill that defines a marriage a certain way, this way or that way. Scripture actually tells me, hey, Greg, you want to transform the world? Love your wife like Christ loves the church. I don't like that because that's a lot harder than just raging at somebody else. Strapping a wrapping a towel around one's waist getting on your knee and washing the donkey dung first off your wife's feet and then off your children if the Lord's blessed the marriage with children. That is harder than just blaming somebody else. You guys ruined marriage. You guys did this. And yet we're going to see that even though obedience is harder, it actually works because God designed humanity he designed our relationships. He designed our brains and our spirits and how they're supposed to interact with each other. And so there's greatest joy is going to be in glad obedience to what he does tell us to do. Greatest joy is not going to be found in passing the buck, being angry at somebody, bemoaning, oh, the world's a mess. Woe is me. It's not going to work. So a marriage that lasts. Yeah, I hope I don't have to argue too hard that it might be nice, not just legally, by the way. We're not going to spend five weeks saying, here's how to not get legally divorced, right? Don't raise your hand. Who knows of a marriage where you're like, oh, I just wish they would get divorced, right? Or, or at least she'd push them off the roof, something, okay? 
Being legally married, married is not God's highest and best for you. This is for free, guys. I'm not even in the notes. God has something for us that is filled with joy that glorifies him because we're filled with joy, gladly submitting to his design. Not, well, I'm not allowed to get a divorce. That, that begrudging submission does not fit in any part of the Christian life, actually. So we're going to talk about thriving. We're not going to just talk about avoiding divorce. Does that make sense? We're going to talk about thriving. Okay? Some of you guys are in a second marriage. Some of you guys are single again. Some of you guys are young, single, never been married. When we look at marriage, I'm about to show you, when we look at marriage, God designed it to show Christ's love to the world. This is how Christ loves the church, and you can be a part of the church by grace through faith. Marriage is so much bigger than us. So let's take a look at it. Uh, today's sermon is called, Why Are We Working So Hard? Now I am going to ask for hands. Who here will testify? You're married now. You've been married before. Who will testify? Marriage is hard work. Your spouse's hand is going to go up anyway, so you might as well put your hand up too. Her hand went up a little faster than yours. Yeah, She got like tendon, she got tennis elbow. If we're going to treat marriage as something we've got to proactively work on, we're building it. We're going to ask ourselves questions like, what is the foundation? And then what do we do next? What tools do we need? How do we know we're doing it wrong? How do we know we're doing it right? And we got to start off with something. Some of you guys have been married before, and it just did not work out. It was bloody hard. The marriage didn't end because it was easy. The marriage didn't end because it was sunshine and roses, right? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand and testify, but like, you can shout an amen to that one. It was hard. Some of you guys are in it right now, and marriage is really, really rough. It's hard. Some of you guys have beautiful marriages, and you can still say, it's Hard work. It's great joy, but it's hard work. Some would say there are seasons. We've had seasons where we were doing really well. We've had seasons that were really rough. And I still, I say this every two years when we do a marriage series, I want to say on repeat to young folks who want to be married one day, we got to tell them that marriage is hard because we live in a culture of quick and easy and they're running into a meat grinder when they get married and they think that it's all just fluffy feelings. <laughs> the, 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 feelings the, the feelings come and go. But is, is there a foundation, something bigger? Why am I working so hard on this? She cannot load the dishwasher correctly to save her life. <laughs> Not any particular wife I'm talking about, just theoretically. Emily and I have talked about that for years because both of our parents do it. Both sets of parents will go behind the other and reload the dishwasher behind the other. And we're just sitting here going. I'm coming to believe the dishwasher is not actually a machine to clean dishes. I think it's actually kind of an ink blot test. It's a personality test. But the fact that of all the marriages in the 20th and now 21st century, not one of them could agree on how to load that thing tells me that we've got an enemy. So, <laughs> Satan uses dishwashers. Early on in marriage, our, our, our uh, dishwasher was five foot eight and gorgeous. But anyway, uh, 
Why are we working so hard is a critical question. It's embracing the fact that this is hard. Okay? We're not going to smile. We're not going to glance over it. This is hard. And I'm going to say the same thing that I say every two years. If you talk to married folk, Christian or not, who have figured out how to put in the effort and make a marriage thrive, they will tell you that marriage is the hardest thing they've ever done and it is totally worth it. And then you talk to some of those same folks that are parents and they will tell you parenting is the hardest thing they have ever done. Man, I thought marriage was hard. And totally worth it. Why do people keep doing this thing if it is so intensely difficult? It's worth it. There is joy waiting for us. So, grab your pens. And let's take some notes and see what the Lord will teach us today. When I say we, in these three points of why we work on marriage, the presumption is that you trust God and what he has said through the Bible. That's a huge presumption. Not everybody believes the Bible is true. If you're here today because you're kicking the tires of the Christian faith, you're going to get to see what God promises about marriage and through marriage. So you're going to get to just look in for free through, through the glass and go, oh, that's what this is all about. So I'm glad that you're here. Uh, Christians, we work on our marriage because doing so is reverent toward Christ. How many of you guys just heard that in verse 21? Submit to one another because it'll be smoother for your relationship. Is that what Paul said? Submit to one another because her parents will approve and your parents will approve and everybody will sign off on it. Do we do that for social acceptance? Is that what Paul said? It's not pragmatics, it's not social acceptance. Anything else that it's not? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Oh my goodness. So wait, it's bigger than me? Young singles, marriage isn't about you. That's the best news in the world, by the way. You're fighting with her, she's fighting with you, and guess what? Jesus knows you're both actually wrong. When you're fighting with your spouse, the only one who's right is Jesus. <laughs> That's good news! Because if his glory is the point, if him being revered is the point of my behavior, my spouse cannot be my opponent. That was for free. Some of you needed that one. My spouse is not the enemy. Winning this fight is not the objective. If we're fighting, trying to win, we've already both lost. And God doesn't get his glory. If I revere Christ, if I have a healthy awe of God, we talked about healthy fear and healthy reverence about five, six weeks ago. How does reverence for Christ play out in marriage? Well, we submit to one another. It's not about us. How can I lay down my rights toward my spouse? This is hard. Who here knows when you're like, you're getting, you got your very first job? The easier way probably would have gotten you fired. It was the mercy of parents that you taught you work ethic or your first boss who was patient with you or whatever to teach you work ethic that the right way is going to be harder, 
But there's longer-term blessing to doing it right now. We don't have to repair it later. It doesn't, your employees or, or your boss doesn't suffer from it later. What if God's glory is on the line, your spouse's joy is on the line, and the way that children are taught about reality, what if all of that is on the line in doing the hard work of building it right? Paul says reverence for Christ is what should drive us who are married or hope to be married one day to submit to one another. Reverence for Christ. This isn't about you. This is bigger than you. So in the American Armed Forces, this is probably the case in other countries as well. Our soldiers do not swear in saying, I am completely loyal to my general and will do everything my general says. That's not how the American military works, thank God. Again, you guys know I'm a nerd, unless you're a guest, I'll out myself. I am going my third time through now a podcast called The History of Rome. It's more than 300 episodes. And that would put you to sleep, but I'm telling you, this is where I get my jollies. Julius Caesar, the only reason you know his name is because when he recruited a legion, he had them swear allegiance to him, not to Rome. Problem much? So when he tells them we're going to march, march on Rome and the Senate's going to run for their lives, they follow him. They've always been following him. I'm so grateful that somebody read a history book before they founded our country. So let me ask you a loaded question. A soldier swears allegiance to our Constitution. They're 18 years old when they do it. They want to go career. They're going to put in at least 20 years. And a president gets elected that they don't like. And the president is the commander-in-chief of the armed forces. Does that change anything for the soldier? I got two quick no's over here. The soldier did not swear allegiance to the president, and they did not swear allegiance to the president that I voted for. They swore allegiance to a constitution. That constitution allows the army to exist, it allows the presidency to exist, it allows democracy in this framework to exist. So the president is beholden to something bigger than him or herself. The soldier is beholden to something bigger than him or herself, bigger than the president. You and I, if we are married or hope to be married one day, when we get into conflict, we do not want to submit to our spouse. If you love Jesus, and you said wedding vows. Those wedding vows, whether you realized it or not, were swearing allegiance to something far bigger than your spouse, far bigger than your happiness. You're not going to make it if you think that life is just about being happy in the moment. You're not going to make it. There is no happiness in your life that can't be taken away with a single text message or phone call. Joy doesn't go anywhere because Christ is still on his throne. But happiness can be taken from you. And if you run into this covenant thinking, you never say this out loud, just in the back of your head. She's cute. She makes me happy. I like being around her. I want to be around her forever. We should get married. And Jesus is saying through Paul, uh, this is about something much bigger than you. If you sign up for the military because you like the current president and somewhere in the back of your head there's an asterisk next to your commitment 
As soon as the president's not somebody I like or not saying something I like, I'm going to wander off. And that's called a court-martial. You don't get to do that. Christian, the marriage covenant, in a weird sense, this is going to sound weird, don't put this on Twitter, you didn't really covenant to your spouse. You covenanted with them. The two of you covenanted to Jesus Christ himself. And this is really, really trippy and really troublesome, although we love you and we're going to serve you, if you made this covenant before the two of you knew Jesus. Maybe you met Jesus later. You're like, I didn't know. I, no one told me that's what I signed up for. But I want you to know that's the best news in the whole world. Jesus isn't only the purpose of your marriage. He's going to hold it together and he's going to allow it to thrive. He's going to teach you how to be humble enough to lay down your rights, to serve your spouse. Man, it's going to be good. Note takers, number two, we work on our marriage because marriage shows the gospel to the world. It shows the gospel to the world. Allow me to define terms. The gospel, good news. The central message of Christianity is that God not only exists and that he is holy and our behavior has been pretty lousy, we call that sin, in purposeful rebellion against him, but he did not want us to join Satan and all of the angels that rebelled against him. He did not want humanity to go to hell. He says, okay, I am going to die for their sins and I'm going to offer them forgiveness freely. And so Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, was born, we call this Christmas, takes on flesh, and he lives the human experience, experiencing every single temptation you have ever faced. But he did what we could not do. He said no to sin every single time for 33 years. Can you guys get your head around that one? He was living for us the righteousness we couldn't achieve on our own. And then he went to a cross willfully to die the death that I deserved for my rebellion against God. Then he raised himself from death to show that I'm not just defeating Satan and sin, I'm defeating death too. I am Lord over all. And then from that point forward, through his church, he says, forgiveness is yours. Trust my cross to wash away your sins. Don't trust your own effort. If you want this, it's yours. And he's been saying it for 2,000 years. That's what Christians mean when they say the words of the gospel. That is illustrated to the world, Paul says. Fellas, put on your big boy pants, because verse 25 is about you. It's actually not about the ladies. Are you ready? When a Christian husband lays down his life for his bride... He is imaging Christ and the church. That should be terrifying if you're a fella. In the covenant that we're imaging, between Jesus and the church, who's a little bit more faithful than the other? Hmm? If Jesus and the church get into a fight over who loaded the dishwasher wrong, <laughs> hmm? If Jesus and the church get into a fight over who loaded the toilet paper roll going backwards instead of forwards, who's right and who's wrong? 
Here's my point. Because Jesus is God, he has loved his church perfectly, right? And we see the very unilateral nature of the covenant. This is my body, this is my blood, given for you so long as you give me your body and blood, it's 50-50. Did Jesus say that? No! He tried, if you obey my law, here are the blessings. If you disobey, here are the curses. Mount Ebal, anyway. So if you've read Exodus, Deuteronomy, you, you, you saw he purposefully gave us a bilateral covenant just to show us we couldn't do it and we're going to need a Messiah. We were terrible at keeping the rules. We needed mercy and we still do. We need grace. We need forgiveness. We need empowerment of the Holy Spirit to do the right thing. So you know what this means, fellas? Verse 25, your sacrificial love toward your wife shows Christ's unilateral love for the church. So I, 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 ooh, this hurts, this hurts. Her current behavior has nothing to do with your assignment. Because the church has been pretty awful to her savior for 2,000 years. We've done amazing things by the power of the Holy Spirit, but every time the flesh takes over, we do stupid stuff, don't we? Brothers, if she speaks disrespectfully to her, to you, you love her. She won't listen worth a darn, and you feel so totally disrespected, and oh my gosh, communication is broken down. You, you lay down your life for her. Paul never said this was going to be easy. Jesus never said this was going to be easy. Us guys, we are fixers, generally. We want to fix. And we're seeing something come from our wife. We're like, the, the first worst possible response is, she's the problem. She needs to do this, this, this. The second response, when we calm down a little bit, is still pretty bad. I'm a little more calm, and I'm like, okay, maybe I can fix this. What do I need to say? What do I need to do? I need to, which may or may not be true. May or may not be true. Sometimes there are conflicts where you have already talked about it and you've fought about it and you have fought about it and you're laying in bed going, Lord, I don't know the way forward. How many of you guys know God does beautiful things right when his people give up and say, I don't know the path forward? Christian husbands, there was no escape clause at the end of verse 25. These verses taught rightly destroy extreme feminism and destroy chauvinism. Fellas, you're not the center of existence. You strap a towel around your waist and you wash donkey stuff off your wife's feet and off your kids' feet. That's your job. That's your assignment out of reverence for Christ and to show the gospel to the world. That's what a husband is. Easy? No. Worth it? Yes. And there's no escape clause. What if, as awful as it would be, because I'm not actually making this up, this is exactly what happens in the prophet Hosea. What if your wife does not respond to your patient love for a long time? What if your sins against her give her valid fears about following you across the street? 
when a guy is ever taught, hey, I'm supposed to be the spiritual leader of the home, but he has this long, my hand is up, has this long track record of failure, sin, selfishness, spiritual abuse, and all of a sudden you're like, you read this Bible verse or somebody taught you in a Bible study, oh, I'm supposed to be the spiritual leader. Honey, do what I say. And you've got years of messing things up, and you're shocked when she's got some concerns. Brother, trust can be torn down way faster than it can be rebuilt. Brother, keep praying for your wife. Keep serving your wife. Read the scriptures to your kiddos if God's given you kiddos. Put your wife first. Keep letting the scripture read you every single day, having its way with you. All of that is is submission to Christ. And at some point, on her terms, inside her heart and inside her brain, she will go, maybe the Holy Spirit really is changing him. We, we want to apologize and we want our spouse to respond right away. I'm a changed person. We're so convinced and our spouse has suffered the cost, has suffered, paid the price for our sins. And they, a little piece of them would like to believe we've changed, but they've been hurt. And brothers and sisters, we are not entitled to somebody in the name of forgiveness just immediately acting like everything's fine. I can forgive you and I still need to draw a boundary because there's been some pain there. Forgive you means I just let go of this spiritual and emotional power that I thought I had to condemn you. I actually didn't ever have it, so I'm going to let go of it. I can now pray for you. I can pray for your blessing because I'm not trying to throw you into hell anymore. None of that precludes drawing a boundary. I want you to go with me to the moon. This is more powerful if you were old enough that you watched this live. Everybody knows that Neil Armstrong setting foot on the moon was not about travel alone. Taking a human being, getting them off of this gigantic blue marble through a freezing vacuum, inhospitable vacuum, where you can be boiled and it's freezing, thanks a lot, this is not, something scientifically is telling me this is not where the Lord wanted us to be. Anyway through this horrible vacuum, to go hang out for a minute on an inhospitable rock that we were hoping was cheese, and it wasn't, and we were very, very deflated. Obviously, the logistics are insane. Even though we've done it, to do it today still makes NASA sweat. We're like, okay, there's a lot to lay out. There's a lot to do. This is not hopping on a bus and going to Cleveland. This is a huge transportation gauntlet. And when Neil Armstrong set foot on the moon, could we have said, the United States and the whole world, could we have said, this is a marvel of 20th century transportation. We got a human being to a place a human being has never been before. 
I said that without giving you my best Jean-Luc Picard impersonation. That was a miracle. Mine has gone before. Um, you could rightly say that this was a transportation marvel. But is that emotionally how Americans received it? When he said this is a giant leap for mankind, was he talking about airplanes and buses and boats? See, there was so much meaning in the middle of the Cold War, and you can have a discussion if you want about the sheer amount of resources. We're awesomer than you. No, we're awesomer than you. We're awesomer. I'll just say, as one who's lived most of my life now after the Cold War, I'm just so great that the leaders didn't throw nukes at each other. They were too busy with their space programs. Praise the Lord. <laughs> if we can distract all the psychos from blowing each other up, that'd be great. So the meaning of landing on the moon for the secular humanist was we can achieve anything. This is amazing. For the Christian, it was God gave us amazing brains and gave us a, a spirit as humans that we could work together to do amazing things. This is marvelous. Wow. There's no way you would degrade such a moment and say, this was just getting from point A to point B. Brothers and sisters, this is why over half of millennials aren't even interested in getting married. Marriage used to have a deep spiritual meaning from a culture that was highly affected by Christianity. Less and less of us went to church, didn't see the value in it, weren't sure that God even existed, we evolved from monkeys, etc., etc. And you wait a generation or two, and then you see how your chickens come home to roost. At some point you go, and I've heard this so many times the last 20 years from people my age, saying, what is marriage besides a tax break? That's a valid question. We haven't told them. They don't know because we didn't tell them. Pragmatically, in your life, marriage is a tax break on a form once a year. Oh my goodness. But to some of us, there's so much more meaning this is how God loved humanity when humanity was rebellious. This is how he reconciled us to himself. So, brothers and sisters, Christians, we don't, we don't marry to have lower rent costs. Brothers and sisters, we don't marry so that we only have one internet bill instead of two. We don't marry because it'll be easier in some other way. We don't marry to file differently in our taxes. Because it's not about us. It's not about what the federal government does or does not say. This is a temporary thing. And let me, let me for those of you that are madly in love right now, let me burst your bubble. Jesus makes it very clear that this image of Christ and his church is what we are doing now to a world that needs to see him and know that they are loved by him. When we get to heaven, there is only one marriage. That does not mean you're going to love your spouse less, that your spouse is going to love you less. It's just that you're going to be so enamored with the bridegroom, Jesus. You're going to worship him forever. This is a picture of a big, eternal reality. There is deep 
meaning in marriage, and that meaning is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why we can't just rail at politics. If I don't show you who Jesus is and what he has done, I haven't shown you the meaning of marriage. You cannot separate Christian marriage from the gospel. I mean, we can, but it's a disaster. You can't do it logically. You can't do it biblically. Third, we work on our marriage for our joy. How many of you guys are so happy it's finally about us? Oh, thank you for ending on a high note, Pastor Greg. I was hoping at some point you were going to take into consideration my own happiness. If you're new, I'm going to say this again. Everybody else, you've heard this on repeat for years. God is not out to spoil your joy. He knows by designing a man, by designing a woman, by designing humanity, marriage, civilization, etc., ethics, he knows that his approach toward everything gives humanity the most joy, not the, less, not the least. And that humans flourish when we listen to our God. It was our God who first said, are you ready? I just want to claim this one. It's right here. In, he's the first one to tell us not to kill each other. Isn't that exciting? He's the first one to say, don't lie to each other. First one to say, be faithful to your wife. He's the first one to say, don't steal from each other. First one to say, it's not good for your soul to sit there and stew and desire what your neighbor has. He was the first one. We didn't need 20th century psychology. Somebody comes along and discovers it and writes a book and sells a million copies. He said it 3,600 years ago. Joy in the Christian worldview, the best possible joy is gladly submitting to everything God told me about whatever area of life, in this case, marriage. I'm not going to read these texts, but I'm going to point out that the man, Adam, the very first human being, he looks through all animals, which are not his companion, they're his job. It's his job to name them, if you've read the, t the story. And the text says, Moses writes down, he could find no companion, no helper suitable for him. God puts him to sleep, takes out a rib, closes it up, and when he wakes up, the woman is there. And he is so underwhelmed, he says, woman, get me a sandwich. Is that the story? Is that how it goes? If you'll notice, if you have a Bible, if you're looking in it, there is a separate indentation when Adam goes, at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. There is a separate indentation. It's not written like a normal paragraph. Because he waxes eloquent, ladies, is this romantic or what? His first thing out of him was a song or a poem. He just everything about her, like, she is a part of me. I can see me. Could you imagine being the only human being? There are plenty of chimps, there are plenty of toucans, there are dogs, there are cats, there are whales, there are birds. And then a man sees a woman, and he sees far more similarity than dissimilarity. Right? He's essentially, from a biological perspective, he's saying, this is a human like me. She's not the exact same, but she's really, really similar as me. And man, is she cute. Guys, that's joy. That's not apathy. That is not indifference. That's not bitterness. That is joy over God's good gift. 
And then I also put in there Song of Solomon, an entire book of the Bible where a married couple are not speaking casually about their love for each other. They are overjoyed. This institution allows them to be free. Let's see, how old are the folks in the room? Okay, are they in the little ears? Um, no, no, I won't go there. We'll save, we'll save that for another sermon. But here, here's, here's what my point is, what I already said. God makes it clear in Scripture, obedience in marriage, building everything about him, is not going to ruin your fun. Okay? It's not going to ruin your fun. The greatest possible joy is fully embracing all of what God has said for us. So I want it to draw us back forever to the image of a garden. This is my call to you, uh, even if you don't love Jesus, actually. If you're married or hope to be married one day, this can be a blessing to you. But particularly if you love Jesus, you're married, you hope to be married one day. Or maybe you don't want to get married, but you've been married in the past, and this will give you perspective on, on your past experiences. Um, no one has the right to buy a brand new house where the backyard is just a mess of weeds. You do not have the right to do nothing all summer long. You bought the house in May, it is now late August or September, and you go out there to your weeds and go, where are my delicious tomatoes I ordered? Where's that zucchini I was hoping for? Where are the lovely wildflowers that I thought about planting over here? It's not how it works with a garden, is it? Who here gardens? Who here gardens? There's something very proactive that only happens when I take ownership over the space, huh? No one's going to design it for me. No one's going to choose what goes where. No one's going to pull the weeds. No one's going to put nutrients in the soil. No one's running to Home Depot. I love it. Honey, I have to. No man has ever said I need to run to Home Depot. It's, honey, I have to. <laughs> have to run to Home Depot. Be back in two or three days. Um, There's something about a garden that communicates to us taking ownership is what's going to bear fruit. My encouragement to you is that if God's glory is on the line, if your joy is on the line, if the world seeing God's love is on the line, there's a lot on the line here. That maybe, just maybe, viewing our marriage as our garden, our backyard, taking some ownership, taking some stewardship and going, Lord, I want you to get all that you deserve through our marriage. Lord, I want the world to see your love for them because of our marriage. Lord, I want greatest joy in this marriage. That's the one we can feel the most easily, right? Lord, I don't want to be miserable. I don't want to suck it up because... Somebody told me divorce was bad. Like, I want to thrive. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know if you've got a desire to thrive, God is with you. He's not against you. You absolutely have every right to take him at his word, particularly Song of Solomon, and go, marriage is supposed to be filled with joy. Wow. So, you've had sitting on your chair since before you walked in this cool little check-in from the Gottman Research Institute. I want to call you to action. By the way, we'll talk, you can do this if you're single and hope to be married too. 
You want to prepare yourself for marriage? Keep opening this book. Read it seriously every day. It will keep telling you that you're not the center of the universe and you are becoming a better wife or a better husband every time you do that. Praise the Lord. You can also read cool books about marriage before you get married. I'm one of those crazy people. I went to a marriage conference once as a single dude because I'm just an information junkie. But it didn't have much effect, you can tell, you, Emily could tell you. But I tried. Brothers and sisters, if you're not investing at least 20 minutes each week working on your marriage instead of in it, let me encourage you in strongest possible terms. Who here knows the difference between working on something as opposed to working in it, right? A manager of a restaurant is running around trying to keep all of the wheels greased so that everybody gets their food. I guess greased was a horrible pun. Uh, all the customers are happy, etc. That's different than the owner sitting in a corner and carefully watching how customers are treated. That's working on the business, right? Having a tough conversation with the manager later. That's working on the business. Brothers and sisters, work on your marriage. Cannot encourage you strongly enough. What you have in front of you is a beautiful way to invest 20 minutes once a week. And I'm not just saying pulling it out of my hip pocket. Emily and I have been trying this out and it has been a blessing to us. These are healthy, beautiful questions. Uh, if they intimidate you, I need you to know, join the club. They are designed for me to share a layer of intimacy with my spouse that can be really tough, can be really hard. And I want you to know, uh, in whatever capacity that that is, the Kaisers, we will give you the shirt off our back to help your marriage thrive. I know that's weird to some of you because I'm young enough to be your son, but maybe, maybe you're not the one that needs help. There are folks in the room, like whatever age you are, whatever stage you are, we will give you whatever we've got. It might not be much, but we will give you whatever we've got, particularly over the next five weeks. We want to encourage you. We want to lift your head up away from the stormy waters back on Jesus. He is going to glorify himself through your marriage and you're gonna get so much joy out of it. He's got a destiny for you and it's a beautiful one. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I pray against the enemy and all that he does to whisper in the ears of the saints. He wants to tell us that this work is too hard. He wants to tell us the wounds are too painful. He wants us to tell us that that cut was too deep. All of which is a lie and a distraction that kind of says the blood of Jesus is not strong enough. Father, we reject that lie together as a family. That if you can raise your son from death, you can raise a dead marriage. Or a marriage we think is dead or ought to be dead. God, fill us with faith and give us testimonies. The next five weeks, God, break things that need to be broken, heal things that need to be healed so that 50 years from now, our families tell the story of what happened back 
in October and November 2023 in our family tree where God healed our family. God, I ask for particular blessing for our widows and widowers. Some of them have had wonderful God-honoring marriages. Some of them today are thinking about some of the struggle. And Lord, those of us who are young, we know just how much we need wisdom and wise counsel from these folks. So I find myself, Lord, not yet 40, in a place of selfishness, just wanting to hear from everybody with gray hair. God, I don't know what it looks like for us to operate fully as a family on this topic, but Lord, I ask that you'd put us in a mindset where we offer what we have, however little we may or may not have in our hands, that we offer it to each other, that we try to be a blessing to each other, we try to encourage each other. God, those of us who have already raised children, our, our youngest is a teenager, or our youngest is in college, our youngest is 45, Maybe we've got a word of encouragement to those that are in the thick of it with diapers and snot noses. God, whatever your beautiful destiny is for this family, the next five weeks, we ask for all of it. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, the ultimate bridegroom, we pray. God's people said.